Thank you so much for joining us today. There are several families that are away picking up their college students who are finishing the semester, and then I know of three people that decided they wanted to worship God today by visiting the golf course, so I appreciate those of you who decided (laughs) that you would spend this spectacular day with us. You know, thanks so much for gathering, and a day like today, Jan makes me really happy that we put in that row of windows above the first floor on our new gymnasium so that we'll be able to look at God's sky on a day like today. Now, all through the winter, who cares? But on a spring day like today, I kind of want to be outside and enjoy it. So I'm not going to be longer than an hour and a half. I'm going to get you all out of here. And what's the, what are we laughing? In her very famous diary, a young Anne Frank exhibited wisdom beyond her years when she said this, Feelings can't be ignored no matter how unjust or ungrateful they seem. Feelings can't be ignored. Our emotions may not be the most important thing about us, but you can make a good case for that, I think. From God's perspective, our emotions are critical. They motivate us, they shape us, they may be the single most important factor in our behavior choices. More importantly, our emotions, perhaps more than any other single factor, determine who we are. Johann von Goethe put it this way, he said, All the knowledge I possess, everyone else can acquire. But my heart is my own. Over the next two months, we're going to look at, head on, our emotions. Now next week, we're going to talk about women and how awesome they are, by the way, women. The week after that, we're going to wave the flag a little bit here at Gateway. We don't often do that, and we're going to celebrate Armed Forces Day. We're going to celebrate our people who serve our country in that particular way. We're going to talk a little about our country And then the Sunday after that, we'll pick up again with the happy topic of depression. But today, we want to talk about stress and anxiety. So over the next two months, we're going to look head on at our emotions. We're actually going to tackle the most difficult of our emotions and explore how in the world we deal with them effectively. We'll look at depression and anger and grief and bitterness, and we'll begin today by looking at stress and anxiety. So... With your permission, I'm going to feel free to repeat this in a few weeks, but I'm going to start with two baselines. By the way, the good news is the lights are out here all across the front, so you can't really see me. Don't worry about it. The bad news is that you can't see Vicky, who's up here evidently for eye candy. So Gateway, this is Vicky Matos. We'll be hearing from Vicky in a second, but I'm going to start with two dangers that we have to avoid. And I don't just mean about anxiety. I mean, just generally speaking. Two dangers that we need to avoid. Danger number one is ascribing omnipotence to our emotions. Now, of course, we don't do that intentionally. We do that unthinkingly. But in other words, we go all in with our emotions. We give them final say. They become all-powerful to us. They virtually control our actions and our thoughts. They become the ultimate barometer for us. We do as our feelings dictate. So, We believe what our feelings dictate. We do what they say we should do. So I feel like nobody here likes me, therefore nobody here likes me, therefore I must be unlikable. We ascribe omnipotence to our emotions. The second danger that we have to avoid in dealing with our emotions effectively are denying our emotions. Now this is not an advertisement, by the way, but if you ever take notes on things that we say here at Gateway, 
Today would be a day to do that. We ascribe omnipotence to our emotions. We deny our emotions, a second danger that we have to avoid. We have a complicated relationship with our feelings. On the one hand, they seem to be unavoidable. They are. On the other hand, we avoid them at all costs, especially the most difficult uh, and unpleasant of our feelings, and these tend to be the most important feelings not to avoid. So we busy ourselves, or we entertain ourselves, or we numb ourselves to the point where our feelings don't register or they're forgotten about. So these two dangers, we ascribe omnipotence to our feelings, they dictate, or we deny our feelings. These dangers are to be avoided because they don't work, they don't make for effective living. When we give our feelings too much control, we end up making very bad decisions, and we come to faulty conclusions. Remember the, therefore, I must be unlikable. And when we deny our emotions, we spend an, in, listen, we spend an incredible amount of energy denying our emotions. And this is energy, by the way, that could be spent dealing healthily with our emotions and growing in the process. And we ultimately fail. Our emotions will not and cannot be denied, not really. They manifest either in an honest, straightforward way as we deal with them or they disguise themselves and they manifest in ways that are unhealthy and damaging. Listen, just a little aside, I didn't mean for this, but a word to you parents. Some of you have heard me say this before, but Diane and I made many, many mistakes as parents. But one of the things that I think we did is when our children were little, and Diane and I will occasionally say we feel like we did I can talk this morning because Jordan's not here. I feel like Diane and I did a pretty good job with our children when they were young. We didn't do so well with them when they were teenagers, and teenagers were hard to do well with. But honestly, I've seen some of you did a better job with teenagers than we did. But when our kids were little, I felt like Diane and I did a couple of things that were very important. And one of those were Tim Eagle and Eric Knox and I were talking about this yesterday. Diane and I did a pretty good job of establishing emotional discipline. And sometimes families have a hard time doing that. So we didn't allow our children to whine. Now I know you're thinking, that's impossible, but you can do it, parents. And we did it from a very early age. So my boys heard me say about 77,000 times when I would get the... (laughs) They'd hear me say, oh, buddy, that's just going to make it worse. And it would. And so guess what? Whining goes away. And they learn emotional discipline. The other thing we did, I think, pretty well is we helped them identify their emotions. So Jordan would be in the kitchen, and this is actually not a made-up incident. I remember this day. We were in the Boston area. Jordan's in the kitchen doing one of his things, and he's just getting out of hand. And Diane turns around. And, you know, of course, lovingly and perfectly, stop. And then Jordan marches off into the living room and beats up on his younger brother, Dawson. So I go into the living room and I grab Jordan, lovingly and perfectly, and shake him until he's unconscious. And then after he wakes up, I say, buddy, you know what that was? What? I say, that was really your pride. You know, you were in the kitchen, and Mom got upset with you. You got upset. You went in and took it out on Dawson. He's clueless. Uh, He doesn't know. But I'm training him emotionally, especially those of you who are parents of young children. That's your job. 
Because our emotions, they cannot control us, and we can't deny them. We have to learn how to identify them. So let's deal, honestly, over the next few weeks with how we feel. Today we begin with anxiety. We want to start by getting a picture of it. So seriously, I invited a good-looking picture to come share about worry, because you can look at Vicky and think, you know, she's got it all together. And almost, but not quite. So Vicki, for you, what does anxiety look like? Anxiety for me physically looks like I get panic attacks. So physically I start to feel uh, my heart racing out of my chest. I hyperventilate. My teeth, gum, face, hands, and arms go numb, completely numb. And it's kind of like an out-of-body experience where I'm sort of like I'm looking at myself and I'm realizing that I'm, I'm kind of going nuts. You know, I'm crying and laughing at the same time and just sort of just very, very numb, but I can't stop it. I'm completely out of control. Do you know that it's coming? Yes, I feel physical manifestations starting before it happens. How long has this been going on? The actual panic attacks have only been in the last three years since I've become a stay-at-home mom. Woohoo! <laughs> um, but anxiety has been my entire life. I just didn't really know that that's what it was. I didn't admit that that's what it was. Okay, so what would it do? Make me a really impatient, okay. angry, not very fun person to be around. Did you feel nervous at times? Not really nerve. Well, I guess it's nerves. But when I think of nervous, I think more like shy, nervous. Like, that's not me. I'm, I'm very outgoing. It's just more like, this is not going my way. This, and okay. I am not in control, and I don't like it. And I'm going to do whatever I can to be in control or okay. to feel like I'm in control. Well, that teases the next question. So what causes it generally for you? Being out of control. Things are not going according to my plan, my schedule. I'm very organized, and, or I think I am. And when it doesn't go that way, I mean, it can, it can be anything from I'm late. When I have a plan, I have it already mapped out in my head what's going to happen from A to Z. And if it doesn't, <laughs> I, I, I crumble. So. <laughs> okay. What have you learned in the process? I've learned a lot, especially recently. But the biggest thing I've learned is to not deny it and really embrace it, that it's who I am. This is why you're here, because you said this to me the other day, and I loved that. So you embrace it. Yes. What do you mean? And I never did before. But see, by embracing it, then I'm not giving in to the anxiety because I thought that if I try to struggle it and wrestle it and change it, and again, it's all me, 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 I, 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 not God, that I could stop it. And instead, it's, it's really, it's who I am. And God is working with me through that and showing me how to help others with it, but also just how to be the person he wants me to be with these characteristics of who I am. Okay, thank you, Vicki. Let's look at the Bible's advice about worry and anxiety, and much of it is gathered into one really incredible passage at the end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to venture to a couple of other spots just to make some additional points, but we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or on your phone, Go to Philippians chapter 4 because this is an incredible passage. And if you struggle with anxiety or you know someone who does, honestly, this is a passage I would commend you commit to memory, the whole passage. I mean, it takes some work to memorize this, but it will be worth it for you. And again, we're going to look at the nature or the character of 
the opposite of anxiety, which the Apostle Paul identifies as peace. And then we're going to look at how to get it. We're going to talk about five practical things that you and I can do to kind of live more in God's peace. Now, let's admit honestly up front that if you struggle with anxiety, you're in good company. I honestly believe that you and I live in the stress capital of the world. I remember when Diane and I first moved to Northern Virginia, I read an article in the Washington Post that said our commutes were longer than anywhere in the country. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Have you been to Los Angeles or New York? And the more I've gotten to know you guys and the kind of commutes you have, it's crazy what some of you do. And those of you who live right here in this area, you know, thank you, Jesus, that Route 50 has now expanded a little bit. Because a year and a half ago, do you remember your commute? I mean, it took 45 minutes to get to 28. It was crazy. And if you tried to come the other direction, it's just as bad. Coming home, you could get to 28. Oh, honey, I'm almost home. And three hours later, you're still on Route 50. And then the stuff that we engage our children in. I mean, I, that's not just here. That's suburban America. But your schedules are nuts. And then the, the overwhelming amount of information that bombards us today and the choices that you and I have to make. If you suffer from anxiety because of the stress-filled life that you and I live, you're in good company, not only in modern suburban America, which I believe may be the capital of stress in the history of humanity, but it's always been the case. The psalmist, you know, complains about how downcast his soul is. Elijah wants to go hide and not be seen by anybody. Jeremiah wishes he'd never been born. He wishes he was dead. He's convinced God deceived him. Some scholars believe he uses a word in that passage that suggests, God, you raped me. He's pretty upset. There are 23 million Americans today, 23 million, that suffer from fairly serious forms of regular anxiety. That's a significant percentage of Americans. And you figure, what are there, 300 million Americans, 320 million, something like that. And that includes all children and babies and teenagers, many of whom haven't grown into their anxiety yet. If you suffer from anxiety, you're in good company. But let's remember you're not in a good place. I mean, Jesus dedicates a considerable amount of his energy saying, hey, don't worry. Clearly, it was a problem for these guys as well. Don't worry, because it it doesn't do you any good, and there's nothing to worry about. God's taking care of it. He's got you. Just seek him. So let's hear this exciting passage from Philippians chapter 4, and I think it's just going to unfold for you pretty much right away, just on the reading. So think about the nature of God's peace, and then how we get God's peace, And then at the very end, just real quickly, we're going to talk about the secret, the real secret. Let's stand together. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And we'll look at Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 4, and I'm going to go through 13. So check this out. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, let me say it again. Rejoice. Paul doesn't often do that. Especially, you know, he's not typing on a computer. Writing is difficult in that day. So he's taking extra space to make sure we get this. Rejoice! Right? Let's say it again. Rejoice! 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. But don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wow! Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned, received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put that into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. In terms of today's topic, this is almost like a parenthesis. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, Father, this is where we live, and I pray we are bold enough to ask you today that you would really speak peace to us today, and not just for this minute that we would sense your presence. We ask for that. More than that, I ask for real hope and strategies for living more consistently in your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, the opposite of anxiety is peace. So, first of all, the nature of peace. And let's say three things about it. Number one, peace is a sense of being protected. The sense of being protected, specifically by God, he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that guard there is a military term. It's the sense of feeling safe. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb says, if you boil it all down, if you cut us open, and you get to the bottom of everything, there are basically two needs that drive us all. There's the need for security, and there's the need for significance. So we need to feel like we matter, and we need to feel like we're okay, that we're safe, we're in control, that our life is copacetic. There are things that make us feel unsafe, out of control for Vicky, or failure for some of you, or loss of purpose that can happen from broken health or dramatic change in life circumstances. Your nest is empty all of a sudden, and you don't know who you are. But peace, first of all, means the sense, the feeling that we are protected, that we're okay. Secondly is contentment. One commentary defined this as poise, equilibrium about our lives. Isn't it fascinating that Paul says he learned this? This business of being content and experiencing that part of God's peace, it's not natural to us. Peace is contentment and a sense of protection that isn't bridled to circumstances. Honestly, I believe that Christianity is the one worldview that offers a, a kind of peace and hope that is not bridled to circumstances. Now look, we need to say right now that you might wish that peace 
and the peace that we're talking about here would mean that God would make everything go well. In other words, you might be wishing, and in fact some of us labor under the delusion that God's peace means that we're going to always be at peace and everything is going to be comfortable around us and things are going to go well. That that's what peace means. And I'm telling you clearly, that's not ever what God has promised you. In fact, Jesus warned us, in the world, you're going to have trouble. Peace means the sense of being protected in spite of circumstances and the ability, the learned ability, to really be content regardless of whether I have plenty or I'm in want. I'm okay. Christianity offers an emotional posture that is not dependent on circumstances. Third thing that we need to say about the nature of peace is there's a sense of confidence. Paul says at the end of this passage, look, I can do all things. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's clear that this is the first cousin to contentment, but we often don't think of it this way. I think this verse in particular is often misused. I've heard Christians over the years use this verse to suggest how mighty they are. What great things we can do. It's a call to recognize, do you know how awesome you are? There's nothing that can stop you because you can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. But read the context. You know, honestly, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, I can even suffer. I can be in want. Nothing is going my way. And I've still got equilibrium and poise and I've got confidence. It doesn't matter what's going on. I'm unrattled. I can make it through any circumstance through Him who gives me strength. The worst that life can throw at me, I can make it through Him who gives me strength. So the nature of God's peace is the sense of we're okay, we're protected, we're guarded by forces that are much bigger than anything else the world has to offer. Secondly, there's a contentment, a stubborn, aggressive, fierce contentment that's not bridled to circumstance. And thirdly, there's a confidence. No matter what life throws at me, I'm going to learn, I'm going to make the best of it, and I'm going to make it. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be fine because he's in me. How do we get it? How do we get that? How do we get to the place that no matter what happens, no matter how badly the schedule goes, and let's take the worst possible day, not just today's schedule, but this year's schedule and my life in general and my entire family and my work and even my future seems like the train has run off the tracks. How in that do I know that I'm guarded? And how do I be content? And how do I be confident I can do this? We're going to be okay. Five things this morning. Number one, Paul tells us clearly and as straightforwardly as he can, present your requests to God. Do not be anxious, he says. This comes as a command. Have you ever considered that it might be a sin to be anxious? Now, look, 
Paul doesn't go that far, and honestly, that's a relief to me <laughs> that he doesn't go that far. But you can be doing what God intends. You can't be doing what God intends, and you, you can't be fully walking in his way if you're walking in anxiety. Not only is it crippling where we go from here and the decisions that we make, but if you're walking with anxiety, that's a symptom that you've walked away from some of these five things that we're going to be talking about. A part of what we need to consider about anxiety, first of all, then, is confessing it, acknowledging it. You know, really the opposite of denial, but not just dealing with it, but I, didn't you love Vicky's word? Embracing it. This is a part of my chemistry. This is a part of how I respond. And it's an unhealthy part of how I respond to my world and my circumstances. God help. And what I'm going to do instead of leaning into anxiety and embracing with it, which, let's face it, many of us do, that's how we end up in what I used to call my funk cycle. We end up embracing it. And instead of embracing it, what we do is we present it. And don't make any mistake, this is Old Testament language of sacrifice. Paul, I think, has that in mind. He's got in mind the old habit that his family may have had of going to God with a sacrifice of some kind and presenting it to God. This lamb or this bird, it's no longer mine. Now, God, it's yours. And so in that same way, we present our offering, our requests, our concerns, our fears to God. God, this is yours. I give it to you. I can no longer use it. I can't nurse it. I can't take care of it. It's yours. This is especially true for those things we can't control, you know, like the outdoor wedding. God, I give it to you. If it rains, then I know you've got something better for me. Or this applies also to short-term stressors, like we're on our way to an appointment and we get a flat tire. God, this is yours. I sacrifice this to you. I no longer own this. You do. This set of circumstances is in your hands. And what happens from here is in your hands. This also applies to long-term stressors. You're out of work. God, you've got me. And you've got these circumstances. You know where I live. I present this to you. I lay this before you. It's no longer mine. I don't own it. Anxiety means that I do not feel protected. I am not content. I am not confident. So what I do is I take all of my concerns and I present them to him. Secondly, be thankful to God. So we present our requests to God. Secondly, we be thankful to God. I like the way Pastor H.A. Ironside put it. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Let me say again, Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. We would worry less if we praised more, he says. Notice the Thanksgiving advocated here is a kind of aggressive Thanksgiving. It doesn't wait for the answer. It doesn't wait for fulfillment. It accompanies the request. This is more than just reflexive thanksgiving, which is important, but this is forward-looking, faith-filled thanksgiving. God, the school system has identified my child with special needs. And I'm disappointed. I feel drawn toward worry and concern and hurt and stress. But I give the situation to you. I give my child to you here. I present her with thanksgiving. 
Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for her. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love her more than I ever could. Thank you for what you will do. You are in this, and because you are, I can rest and give thanks. I thank you. We had a stressful situation present itself, and you'll be hearing more about this later. We were talking yesterday, had an elder meeting yesterday morning, and we're talking about different options, and what does this mean, and where do we go from here, and we're kind of calling one another to pray about this, and right before we prayed, Tim Eagle, who's not usually very spiritual, honestly, Tim Eagle said, you know, isn't this a good thing? And isn't this a good thing? Oh, wow. Wow. Graduate degree and how to see things from God's perspective. It's driving us to Him. It's forcing us to say, God, what are you doing? Riveting our attention in that direction. Yeah, ultimately, this is a good thing. Thanks. Thank you, God, for this good thing. Third, we have to change our thinking. So we present requests. We be thankful to God. And third, we change our thinking. Dr. Archibald Hart is a psychiatrist with expertise in stress and anxiety. He's authored two wide-selling books on the topic. First, he wrote a book called Adrenaline and Stress, and then he wrote The Anxiety Cure. In The Anxiety Cure, Dr. Hart repeatedly cites a comprehensive research project called the Anxiety Disorder Treatment Need Project. The project examined 518 people who suffer from anxiety disorders. 29% of these suffered from regular panic attacks. Another 23% were diagnosed with a technically panic anxiety disorder. 82% were or had been at some point on medication. Only 3% had never received any kind of treatment of the 518. The purpose of the study was to identify the most effective treatments. So in the end... 36%, unfortunately, 36% of those studied reported that none of the treatments were effective. Also, all participants who were helped recognized that a combination of treatments and a combination of approaches is what worked best. Having said that, the results of the study were fascinating. Listen to this. Of those who were helped, and let me give you these statistics. I don't have them on the screen, but follow this if you can. 16% of those who were helped reported that they had been helped by medication. And I want you to know, for some of us, medication is important, either in the short term or in the long term. This is not a sermon against medication. For some people, the stressors are so high, our ability to deal with them is so diminished, the rubber band has been stretched so many times it's frayed and there's no longer any elasticity. And we need help, either over the long term or the short term, to regain some equilibrium. 16% were helped by medication. 25% were helped by hypnotherapy. <laughs> 72%, I'm skipping a few, but the statistics do make this dramatic jump. 72% were helped by relaxation techniques. I know some of you have employed some of that. 75% were helped by just reading self-help books. 78% were helped by cognitive behavioral therapy. 83%, remember this, 83% were helped by support groups. And that was the second highest number. 95% of those who were helped, 95% said they were helped by working with their thinking patterns. 
Now, this is exactly what we should expect given God's instructions. Paul says, look, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, think about those things. Set your mind as a discipline. Set your mind on those things. Paul goes so far as to tell us that in another passage, he says, you're changed. You get transformed as your mind is transformed, by renewing your mind. I had an interesting time with God one morning this week, and I wanted to read you guys something, if you'll indulge me, just a paragraph from a journal. I was thinking about this and uh, this Sunday, but also this was a section I was reading had something to do with joy, and something occurred to me. I was, I was thinking about my own life and thinking about joy, and I wrote these comments. It seems to me in retrospect, like joy was always close to the surface for me when I was young. I felt exuberant much of the time, ready to burst, in fact, at the slightest encouragement. In retrospect, I believe I built a joy based on youth and possibilities. As such, it was always more fragile than I realized. So, it didn't matter what my circumstances were, because what I could do in those circumstances is just daydream about how much better they were going to be and all the possibilities. You know, it's still possible for me to be Time Magazine's Man of the Year and a rock star. And little by little, over time, the possibilities narrow, don't they? And then at a certain point, you get to the point where your hair starts to turn gray, and the possibilities are pretty narrow indeed. <laughs> I'm no longer going to be a brain surgeon or president of the United States, not that I would want to do either, frankly. I'm not going to be a rock star, and I'm not going to play in the NBA. And when joy is based on youth and possibilities, it's fragile indeed. This is a word to those of you who are under 30. Begin now to build your joy on something more sustainable. It'll be helpful. My thinking was undisciplined. I didn't train myself early enough. No, don't pursue that. Think about this. If we examine Paul's thinking outline, we'll see that greed, lust, pride, self-aggrandizement, rehearsal of anger, self-justification, control, worry, materialism, they're all eliminated. So all of those daydreams... And all of those speech rehearsals, they're all eliminated. I've learned from experience these things are like spiritual Twinkies. They're immediately tasteful. They're even delicious. But they're overly sweet, and they never make us feel better in the long run. They're never satisfying. Never. Fourth, we have to be vigilant in this. So let's leave Paul for just a second. Jesus in Matthew 26 Verse 41, Jesus said this, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is literally the opposite of denial. This is hypervigilance about your own life. This is Vicky no longer trying to deny it, no longer not really recognizing that that's what's broiling and boiling under the surface, but owning it and even embracing it. And let me say two things underneath this business of being vigilant. Number one, you and I need to identify triggers. Now, this takes work, but that's the point. Be conscious, be aware, be vigilant. Identify your triggers. There are things that set you off on a worry trail. 
For Vicky, it's the feeling of being out of control, especially related to her schedule or her children. What is it for you? What are the triggers that get you going in this direction? Secondly, you've got to know the early warning signs. Perhaps it's that you're angrier than you have a right to be. Perhaps you're more irritable than you have a right to be. Perhaps you haven't been able to sleep well for days or even for weeks. These are early warning signs. Be vigilant and then begin this work. Present it to God. Go with thanksgiving. Be vigilant. Do the work. Don't surrender to your own funk cycle. Don't surrender. Don't continue to get yourself stuck in that thinking habit. And fifth, finally, pursue community. Did you notice that the second most helpful strategy in the anxiety treatment need project was the help of a support group? (laughs) This shouldn't surprise us, Gateway. Our mission at Gateway is to draw others into authentic Christian community. This is what we bleed. Saying that a support group is helpful is like saying your car runs on gasoline. My car runs best on gasoline. Well, of course it does. That's how it was built. You were built for community. You were built for connection. You were built to give and to receive support. It's how we were designed. We need to seek the support of community, not in spite of anxiety, but in it and because of it. You cannot do this alone. Here's what this means. I know this is obnoxious, but don't miss this. For some of you, this should be a regular report at your small group. You need to get regular prayer. You need to hear regular wisdom. You are not a burden. This is not true and should not be part of your thinking. Oh, I'm going to have to talk again about anxiety. I don't think anybody in the room likes me. Therefore, because I feel like no one likes me, no one does like me, I'm unlikable. They don't want to hear about my anxiety. I'm not going to say a word. This should be every week for some of you. And that's not obnoxious. These are my worries. I need you to pray for me. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage one another. It's what we do. More to the point, Hebrews 3.13 says this. Listen to this. Encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today. So on the day that it stops being called today, stop encouraging one another. But as long as it's called today, then you guys go ahead and encourage one another. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And doesn't anxiety do that? Doesn't it rob us of our softness and our freedom? Don't we get wrapped up in ourselves? And don't we spin out of control? And don't we get irritable? And don't we get angry and impatient when we get in a funk cycle? Aren't we hardened, in fact? Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another, as long as it's called today. Okay, let's end with the secret. The secret is all of this happens in Christ. In chapter 3, we could go many places, but just if if your Bible's open, you'll see this. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul's giving kind of his own testimony. He's really preaching here. He's kind of, he's at the high point. He says, look, whatever was profit to me, whatever I considered in the profit column, all of that stuff I now consider loss for the sake of Christ because he's so much greater than all of that stuff. All the accomplishments I had, all the degrees I had, the respect I had, that's nothing. He goes on, what's more, I consider everything, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing, and here's the main reason I wanted to read all of that, knowing Christ my Lord. 
So I read all of that to set you up for the notion that Paul continually, consistently refers to Jesus as the Lord. This is what he means. For Paul, this is Trinitarian. I don't have time to explain that more fully, but don't take my word for it. Go home this afternoon and read the Apostle Paul. Hear what he says in our passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident in all. The Lord is near. He's got this. And then listen, that critical verse, listen to what he says. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is why I'm a Christian. I read this this week and I got converted again. Jesus took all that separates us from God. All that leaves us exposed and unprotected. All that worries us, all that concerns us. Jesus took all of our fears and all those things that drive us inward and get us into those anxiety funk cycles. He took all of that and it died with him on the cross. That's why he said in his final moments, God, why have you forsaken me? How could ultimate unity, ultimate unity, I mean oneness, essential, eternal oneness, immutable oneness, how could it feel forsakenness? And especially a forsakenness at that depth is because he's taken all that separates us, all that binds us, all that prevents us from walking free and confident. He took it all on himself. And imagine the crushing blow of that. And then he killed it. He became what threatened us so that we could be guarded. He became our fear. Paul says in another place, Here's how it works, you guys. God made him who knew no sin. He didn't, he, sin was not part of his chemistry. He made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God and everything that knocks us off balance, everything that causes us to lose our equilibrium and our poise, swallowed up in his death, And in the victory of his resurrection, what is released to us is the peace of God. That's why every week at Gateway, we look at one another and we say, peace of the Lord be with you. And the other person says, more energetically usually, the other person says, and we mean it. And we mean it because it's real. You know how often we do that? You know when we end up doing that? Anybody know? How often do we do that? When should we do that? As long as it's called today. So, unless memory is misserving me, I mean, this is today, right? Am I wrong? Let's pass Christ's peace to one another right now. Stand up and pass Christ's peace to one another, and I want you to mean it. All right, you may be seated real quick. I'm sorry. That wasn't good enough. There are people who didn't get peace passed to them because they're a little shy. They're not like Vicky. They're not out there. And they may need encouragement. Do you know when we're supposed to encourage Today. Today. So when you get to the day where it's not called today, you're off the hook. You don't have to encourage anyone. 
But today is not that day. Now, most of us haven't noticed, but a few of you are more in tune with other people and you care about other people, unlike me. You're more in tune to other people than I am, and you've walked down and you've thought, you know, man, Jonathan looks bummed out. Or, Linda Knox, what happened to your arm? Or, Joe Barsati, what happened to your shoulder that Ed tried to grab on the way in this morning? <laughs> you know, what? You, why are you limping? Or how's the little one? Or who are you? Hey, how long have you been coming to Gateway? Well, awesome. Glad to have you. Peace of the Lord be with you. And they say, or they say right back at you, you look awesome today. I'm going to encourage you because it's today. So when are we supposed to pass God's peace? He's given us something. He's given us confidence. He's given us the sense of being protected. He's given us contentment. No matter what happens, we can be content. No matter how much money we have. Even if we never get the new countertops in the kitchen. The promotion at work has passed us by three times and guess what? It's going to be four more. (laughs) Doesn't matter. We can be content because His peace, it hovers. It's here. Peace of the Lord be with you. You want you to remember the five-minute rule. You've got to speak to somebody you don't know. Now, if you're shy and awkward, go grab my wife, Diane, or go grab Eric Knox. Only grab Eric if you're going to be there for 15 minutes. Go grab somebody that knows how to talk to other people and say, hey, I'm stupid. Bill Russell, take it away. And y'all have a conversation with someone you don't know. So, and also, when you're having that conversation, you're going to encourage them, and you're going to encourage them because this day is called today. So, people of God, go in peace. Thanks for coming.